James, the second chapter. This morning, as we turn the precious pages of Holy Scripture and have the words of the living God for us, we have seen and studied the seven lessons that are in chapter 1, and there we found a number of things that God expects of us, His children, under the New Testament, in order to please Him and to have pure and undefiled religion before Him. We will learn some more things in chapter 2. There are three lessons in chapter 2. The first two are related to each other, but we will separate them somewhat. Verses 1 through 9 describe partiality with persons, or called here, respective persons. Verses 10 through 13 describe partiality in the law of God itself. And then verses 14 through 26 describe justification by works. And it was on the basis of that last section of chapter 2 that Martin Luther didn't like James, considered it a straw epistle and didn't want it in his Bible because he didn't understand. And I hope that we can understand and I hope we already do. I want to read to you the first nine verses and then comment upon them that the Lord has given us here in this chapter. James chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring, in goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, and ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool. Are ye not then partial in yourselves, and are become judges of evil thoughts? Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him? But ye have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by the which ye are called? If ye fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. But if ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. Amen and amen. amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let it humble us today and teach us the lesson that in the assemblies of this church and in the membership of this church, there should never be any distinctions shown based on economic power or financial wealth. We are all one and the same. And you know we were already taught that in the first chapter. Because in the first chapter in verse 9, the apostle wrote and said, Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted. And then he wrote the brother that is rich and told him to rejoice because he's been humbled and brought low. So we're all together on the same playing field and the same plane in the sight of God in the New Testament church. And I'll, I'll explain that a little more as we go through this first few verses here. Let's look at that first verse, James chapter 2 and verse 1. After all the of chapter 1, here is another lesson. My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
the Lord of glory, with respective persons. The faith of our Lord Jesus Christ is the doctrine, it is the gospel, it is the truth, it is the religion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't profess to be a Christian. Don't follow the Lord Jesus Christ and then mix with that a respect for people based on their economic ability. Don't do that. The two things do not go together. Is what James is teaching in this first verse. This is an imperative verse construction there at the beginning of the verse. My brethren, have not. Do not mix these two things. Do not profess and claim to be a Christian or a follower of Jesus Christ and the way of truth that is in Christ and mix with that respective people based on their external appearance of wealth. Do not do this, my beloved brethren. Do not mix Christianity with such a thing. In Christ, we are all equal. Look at Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28. Holding your, holding a finger there at James chapter 2 because we'll return immediately to it. Galatians chapter 3, let's remind ourselves of this important fact. For a Jew, it was easy to look down on others. They considered themselves the chosen people of God, and many of them were wealthy, and they looked upon the poor as well. But here is a warning and a wonderful statement made by Paul in Galatians chapter 3, which we studied not too long ago. Galatians 3.28 There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. There are three distinctions made between nations, made between economic ability, and made between sex that do not exist in the house of God. We are, the women are equal heirs with us of eternal life. In their roles and offices, they differ. There is a difference between a man and a woman in the roles and offices they have toward each other, but not when it comes to the playing field of worshiping God and knowing your salvation. All equal. When it comes to the house of God and formal worship, men speak, women do not. Outside the home, women submit themselves to their husbands and their husbands rule over them. Outside the, out, I mean outside the church, outside the church, masters rule over servants. And so there is a difference between bond and free, but not when we come in these doors. When we come in these doors, it doesn't matter whether you're a master or you were a slave. No difference at all. We were the same before Jesus Christ. No difference between men and women. God has loved both of us equally because it took an equal sacrifice of His Son to save us both. And so there is no difference. Turn a few pages to Colossians chapter 3 and let's see it worded slightly different. Colossians chapter 3. The lesson we want to take home this morning from this passage of Scripture is no cliques, no distinctions, no preferential treatment in the house of God Anything like external appearance or riches. Money in this world has nothing to do with the next world. And when we come into this place, we're walking by faith in light of the next world. Not this world. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 11. The apostle writes and says, Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, But Christ is all and in all. Amen. Amen. There it is again. Other distinctions being taken out of the way. There's no difference. 
You know, the Greeks prided themselves on their education and their wisdom. And here the apostle says, you've got to put up with barbarians in the assembly of God. You have to put up with those Scythians in the assembly of God. There is neither Greek nor Jew. Circumcision doesn't matter. Sex doesn't matter. How you're employed doesn't matter. Whether you're bond or free doesn't matter. Because we're all one in Christ Jesus. Back to James chapter 2. Back to James chapter 2. My brethren, do not mix these two things. Do not take the religion of Jesus Christ and include with it a measure of partiality and respect of persons. Now in the middle of this verse, as it's describing the Lord Jesus Christ, it says, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. I love it when the Bible, by the Holy Spirit, sticks little phrases, sometimes clauses, sometimes verses, into the midst of an argument that are blessing the Lord Jesus Christ or blessing the God of heaven. The Apostle Paul is well known for it. How he can be writing along and go off into an, just a wonderful, ecstatic description and praise of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says amen and gets back to his train of thought. Because while he's rolling along by the inspiration of God, he blesses Jesus Christ. And here we have a blessing upon Jesus Christ being called the Lord of glory. And we read Psalm 29 together this morning because it describes the glory of our Lord. When we sang that psalm from our Psalter, you will notice that we found the word Jehovah. His name Jehovah. Remember the name Jesus. Mary never called a child Jesus. Jesus is a Hebrew name that Mary called her firstborn son, which then was translated into Greek, which then came into English. We use the word Jesus. That's important to remember. If you don't remember it, you're going to run into some problems in Acts chapter 7 and Hebrews chapter 4, because in both places you're going to read about a Jesus And it's not the Son of God. It's Joshua. Because the name Mary called her firstborn son was Joshua. It just comes to us in the form of Jesus. And that name Joshua is glorious. It's Jehovah is salvation. Jehoshua. Jehoshua. Jehovah is salvation. So when we speak of Jesus, and we speak of the Lord Jesus Christ as it is right here, In this verse, we are speaking of Jehovah is salvation. Emmanuel, God with us, is our Savior. He is our Lord, and He is the anointed Messiah of Israel. That's all contained in the words, Lord Jesus Christ. Because the New Testament tells us that the word Christ means Messiah of the Old Testament. But we have the words, the Lord of glory. Why are are those words stuck in here? Do they serve the purpose of teaching us against respective persons? The Lord Jesus Christ is the Lord of glory. Even if the princes of this world did not recognize Him and crucify the Lord of glory, they would not have done so if they'd have known who He was. Because unless God reveals His Son to you, you will not know who He is, no matter how many miracles He performs, nor how impeccably He conducts Himself on trial, you will not know unless God reveals that. But we, it has been revealed to us, and we believe He is the Lord of glory. The Lord of glory is so far above all men 
that the relative differences among us should make no difference. This is a matter of perspective. The Lord of glory is so high above all of us that if there might be a little tiny bit of economic difference among us in here, in perspective of that height, it's impossible to perceive it. It's gone in the sight of the Lord of glory. The Lord of glory is worthy of our highest adoration and esteem to ignore such trivial concerns here on earth. The Lord of glory was born poor, raised poor, and died like a poor man. So we should have no hatred of the poor if the Lord of glory came into this world that way. The Lord of glory is the holy and just God of Israel who does not respect persons at all. So that's why we have, in several different ways, the words, the Lord of glory right here. The Lord of glory is a glorious God who has no respect of persons Himself. Holding your finger at James 2, look at Deuteronomy chapter 10. Let me remind you of something about the God we worship. He is no respecter of persons. It is amazing to talk to people about election. Those who've never heard it before or those who want to rebel against it, one of their arguments they'll come up with, but I thought the Bible says God is no respecter of persons. As if that is an argument against the doctrine of election. I don't know how their mind is wired. Somebody got the wire nuts on the wrong wires. Because election is proof that he is not a respecter of persons. Because he chooses according to his own will, not according to anything he sees in them. Respect of persons is when you see something in someone and you allow that to alter your decision making. God doesn't elect based on what he sees in men. He elects based on what he doesn't see in men. What he didn't see is any of us ever seeking him. There is none that seeketh after God. Romans 3.11 There is no fear of God before their eyes. They are all gone out of the way. There is none righteous. No, not one. And that's what he saw, and he elected in spite of that. Praise the Lord, there's no respect of persons with God, and there certainly isn't any in election. Election proves there isn't. He didn't elect based on any foreseen faith, obedience, or anything else, because Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 tell us that when God looked down from heaven upon the children of men, which he did do, The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek after Him, and He found none. He found none. His foreseeing of us saw nothing but sin and iniquity and no regard for Him, so He saved against our will, by His own will, to the praise of His glorious grace. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Deuteronomy 10.17, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, a great God, a mighty and a terrible, which regardeth not persons, nor taketh reward. He doth execute the judgment of the fatherless and widow, and loveth the stranger in giving him food and raiment. Notice this God does not show respect of persons. A rich man coming into this God's presence gets no preferential treatment. In fact, this God goes the other direction. He takes care of the widows and the orphans and the strangers. This is the God of gods and Lord of lords. This is the Lord of glory of James 2. Come back 
to James chapter 2. Well, while you're there in the Old Testament, look at Exodus chapter 23, because I want you to see that respect of persons was condemned under both Testaments. Exodus chapter 23 and verse 3. Neither shalt thou countenance a poor man in his cause. Turn to Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19. We're going to have a couple of references taken out of this chapter here in James chapter 2. Leviticus 19 and verse 15. Ye shall do no unrighteousness in judgment. Thou shalt not respect the person of the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty, but in righteousness shalt thou judge thy neighbor. Here's the ruling, and there's many, many more verses like this. When you were going to make a decision about someone, or if you were in a position of, of rulership, and you had to make a judgment about someone, you were not supposed to let their circumstances alter your judgment. Whether rich or poor, you were to judge righteously based on God's law and the circumstances of the case, not the persons. If they were a friend, if they were a neighbor, if they were a relative, none of those were grounds for altering your judgment. You were to judge purely by God's word and righteousness. Let's come back to James chapter 2. There are many more verses like that in both Testaments. While you're turning back to James 2, let me read you a warning that's given to Timothy as a minister. And this is one sober warning. Listen to these words. Paul to Timothy. I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that thou observe these things without preferring one before another, doing nothing by partiality. What a sober warning. I charge thee before God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the elect angels, that thou put into practice 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, without preferring one member above another member, not showing any partiality in your judgment. James 2. The grace of God that brings salvation has made us all equal. James has already defined that in chapter 1. And then he said in that 27th verse of chapter 1 that pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this. To go after widows and orphans. He doesn't say to cater to the rich. Go after widows and orphans. My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. The Lord Jesus Christ has no respect of persons. And when we stand before Him, we will discover that if you haven't learned it by faith from His Word. I hate giving illustrations, but I, once in a while I'll do it just to keep you awake. I told my children this week because we were talking about getting college degrees. And I remember one time, yes, I graduated, my undergraduate degree was from Madonna College in Livonia, Michigan. What had once been a Catholic girl's school. You can tell that by the name, can't you? Madonna College. It was a co-ed university offering a variety of degrees. And I remember, I remember after getting two, the credit for two religious courses, eight credits for preaching in the Detroit church, that I went to the registrar and showed her the piece of paper from the head of the religion department that I deserved eight credits for preaching in the Detroit church against the Catholic church. 
she said, Mr. Crosby, I think you'll be able to talk your way into heaven. No, I don't think so. I don't think so at all. The reason I give you that little illustration, I want to ask you this. You know that in most cases in life, most authorities that you have met, you are able through a verbal explanation of what you have done to dilute the judgment against you, to sway the person that's going to rule against you. You learned that with your parents. Then you practiced it on first and second grade teachers. And you've tried that many times in your life. But you will not do it when we stand before Jesus Christ. The Lord of glory is no respecter of persons. And if you have shown it here, He will not show it there. And you will be judged without mercy. So we want to learn that from this first verse. If we are Christians, and we claim to be, then we do not want to mix with that any respect of persons. Anyone coming through that door gets equal treatment in this church regardless of any external appearances about them or different status in this world. The word with in James 2.1 should be understood as along with. Because when it says, my brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, along with respective persons. You can't have both things together because they're enemies of each other. They oppose each other. The word with is to be understood as along with because there's two things being considered here. We are to have one without the other. James chapter 2 and verses 2 through 4. We're going to have an illustration given to us now, a hypothetical illustration that will make James 2, 1 very plain. Verse 2, For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring in goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor in vile raiment, and ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou there. Or sit here under my footstool. Are ye not then partial in yourselves and are become judges of evil thoughts? This is an illustration of verse 1. In verse 1, all we were told is, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you can't respect persons. The respect of persons that he's condemning is then given to us in verses 2 through 4. And that is showing preferential treatment to someone in the house of God. Listen very carefully preferential treatment to someone in the house of God, in God's worship, in things pertaining to salvation, based on economics. We're not to do that. We're not to do that. Let me briefly say, once once you're out these doors, we make these differences all the time. If you're buying a car, I'll give you a hint. You want to buy a car from a man who has the money to repair that car correctly and properly, and who's taken good care of his house's appearance, his garage's appearance, and his personal appearance. You find a man like that, you are buying a better car than if you were to buy a car from someone that had a vile appearance, his house wasn't maintained, his garage wasn't maintained. You may assume safely that his car isn't maintained either. Outside these doors, we make differences. If you are rent, if you are a landlord and you are renting property, you make judgments very quickly based on someone approaching you to rent your property. You have them fill out an application and you make judgments. The Lord isn't condemning that here at all. Wise men are always looking for who is a diligent man 
And who is a slothful man? We make that if we're masters and we're hiring. When we meet someone and we're hiring them, we look at their appearance. We look to see if they got up that morning and took care of themselves before they came to an interview. But this is in the house of the Lord. There are no differences inside these doors. If someone were to go to medical school and become a doctor and be in our midst, they are brother so-and-so. We will not refer to them as doctor so-and-so in this assembly. We do not care about their distinction outside in the world. In here, we are all brethren. And we will always be brethren. And this is the lesson we want to learn from this first verse. And it carries right down to our children. I want to remind you without turning there, in Matthew chapter 18, the Lord Jesus Christ called a little child to Himself. And He said, Beware that you do not offend one of the little ones that believe in Me. Now we're talking about one old enough to... Let me chase a rabbit for a second. Hopefully I can remember my thought. You know, the Presbyterians and the Pado-Baptists, remember they're called Pado-Baptists. The same reason your child's doctor is called a pediatrician. They're called Pado-Baptists because they think they're baptizing children. And they go to passages like that. And in some places it doesn't say that these little children that Jesus called to Him were believers. But in Matthew 18 it does. These little children that believe in Me. And in this church we have little children that believe in Him. Some of them are not even baptized yet. Because we're waiting for a full understanding of their conscience about baptism. But we are to love them and not show partiality. In this church, there are no differences and we will not offend even our little children. And one of those children has a nickname of Grandpa to give you cause to think about what he will be in just a few years so that we will treat all alike. This does not mean that in a church there are not spiritual and carnal members. The Lord tells us to make that distinction. But we will not show preferential treatment based on economics or finances. We will make changes in treatment based on the spirituality of a person. Because the Bible says to do so. Just because you're in this church and you have met the minimum qualifications to be a member does not mean that you are good enough for marriage. Marriage requires a whole lot more than the bare minimum of being a church member. If you want, if you, if you love your family and you want to take care of your children, then you're going to aim higher than being a bare member of this church. You're going to aim for someone that's spiritually in love with the Lord Jesus Christ, gracious, fears God, lives by His Word, enjoys hard preaching, and conforms their life to Jesus Christ. So don't misunderstand this verse. We are given the explanation for it in verses 2 through 4 when we're talking about an assembly. And you know, when someone comes in with a fine set of clothes, or we look out in the parking lot and see that he had a fine set of wheels that got him here, we can know that the man probably has a successful job, probably lives in a nice house and has a good income. Shouldn't make one whit bit of difference in how we treat them in the house of God. No distinction of rich in the front and poor in the back, or rich on the right and poor on the left. We don't make any like that. The term, isn't James a tough apostle? Look at the illustration he gives. Can you imagine telling someone coming into your assembly, sit here under my footstool? (laughs) It's hard to even imagine. But James is like that. I I want you to learn to love James. He is hard hitting. There there are no wasted sentences in James. You know, he has one sentence for his salutation, open this book, and then it's like that. 
And it's like that until the very last period. He's hitting us with godly living. And the godliness that we want to learn this morning is that there are no differences in our church based on success in this world, educational attainments, riches, or any external things like that. When we come in these doors, we are all brethren. We are all heirs of the grace of eternal life. Verse 4 tells us, Are ye not then partial in yourselves? See, this is partiality among people. In verse 10, we're going to get to partiality in the law. Here is partiality among people. And we should hate that word. We should despise that word. Partial. Partiality. It means unfair. Unequitable. Distorting justice. Mistreating people based on the wrong criteria. Partial. We don't ever want to be partial. We want to treat everyone the same. We want to treat everyone fairly, righteously, and godly. Especially, I mean, right here in this church, everyone is on an equal footing and are become judges of evil thoughts. Not that they are judging evil thoughts, but their evil thoughts are doing the judging. This is one of those prepositional phrases where you need to understand which is which. Judges of evil thoughts. No, they aren't judging evil thoughts. Their evil thoughts are doing the judging that a rich man deserves better treatment than a poor man. And you know how true this is in many churches? If a man walks in with a, with a fine suit of clothes on and a, and a nice big ring and he drove a nice set of wheels, the pastor and deacons often go after a man like that with special treatment because he's able to do a lot more for that church than other men. Never are we going to show that. Never. We don't care about their money. We care about their souls. Me, give me five or ten relatively poor men who fear God, and he'll probably outgive the rich man anyway. Many rich men are greedy mice. Oh, God can save a few, but he hasn't saved many. Verse five. Much more could be said in some of these verses, but you, you understand, and this was not a difficult chapter. I think you probably read it last night and understood most of it. We just want to have the Holy Spirit convict us of it that we'll practice this every day of our lives in this church toward one another. Now he says that's evil thinking. He says that's being partial. If no difference based on clothing or apparel or a ring or riches. To show any difference like that in the house of God is partiality and it's evil thinking. Now he's going to start giving reasons as to why it's wrong. He's already given one. Because the Lord of glory doesn't show respect of persons, and we shouldn't either. Verse 5. Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which He hath promised to them that love Him? First argument right here is, brethren, don't show respect of persons and respect the rich more than the poor, because God has emphasized the poor in His religion. Do you believe that? God has emphasized the poor. Look at Matthew chapter 11. God has chosen the poor, rich in faith. Does anyone want to argue about where faith comes from based on that verse alone? Where does faith come from? God's choice. God has chosen the poor, rich in faith. Or is he saying God has chosen the faith, God has chosen the faithful poor? Or does it say God has chosen in his discrimination in the world 
to bless with salvation the poor more than the rich. That's what it's teaching. God has chosen the poor of this world rich in faith. It's God's choice that gives a man faith. Faith is a gift from God. Without it, by the Holy Spirit, you would never believe a thing about the kingdom of heaven. Matthew chapter 11, 25. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in thy sight. It was good in God's sight to hide the truth of the gospel from the educated, the intellect, in, the intellectuals, and to give it to the babes in Jesus Christ. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. God has chosen the poor rich in faith. He has chosen. We're going to see the proof of what I was just reasoning with you about in 1 Corinthians 1, that God gives faith. It's His choice. He made the difference. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, God is being described here by the Apostle Paul as having guaranteed the failure of all human wisdom. That He would mount above it and make all wise men of this world into fools to magnify Himself. And he says in verse 26 through the Apostle Paul, he tells these, this Corinthian church to look around. He says in verse 26, For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are. That no flesh should glory in His presence. Amen. This is God's choice. It's not, it's not that the poor, the weak, the base, choose God at a higher proportion than the rich, the mighty, and the noble choose God. None of them choose God. But God chooses them, and in His choice... He chose more poor men to fill the kingdom of heaven than rich men. When we read the gospel accounts, who were the two, what were the two jobs that went first into the kingdom of heaven? Publicans? Harlots. That is the low end of the economic scale. The rich men, the wise men, the educated men refused to humble themselves in repentance before God and go into the kingdom of heaven. And so we can see an explanation for verse 5. Let's come back to verse 5 of James chapter 2. God hath chosen the poor rich in faith. God chose the base and those people that are nothing in this world in order to bring to nothing those people who think they are something. So that God gets all the glory in heaven. His own apostles, you look at their, you know, fishermen. Fishermen out there on the little Sea of Galilee. They didn't own a fleet on the Mediterranean. They had little boats on the Sea of Galilee. Peter, James, John, and Andrew. And other, you know, Matthew was a publican. We come back to James chapter 2. Hearken, my beloved brethren, how in the world can you show preference opposite of what the Lord has shown? We can look around us according to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and see that God has chosen the poor of this world rich in faith. God's chosen them to be the heirs of the kingdom which He hath promised to them that love Him.
Can't you see that? This is a rhetorical question. You can see the verse ending with a question mark. You should be able to see the answer. Is it true? Is it true that God's chosen the poor? Yes, it's true. It says he, not many mighty, not many noble. It doesn't say not any mighty and not any noble, but not many. Mighty and noble are exceptions in the kingdom of heaven. It was the common people that heard him gladly. Do you know that's in the Bible? Mark chapter 12 and verse 37. The common people heard him gladly as he put down all the false teachers of his generation. The common people heard him gladly. They all stood around and rejoiced when he put the Pharisees, then the Sadducees, then the Herodians to shame. The common people heard him gladly. Verse 6. But ye have despised the poor. Opposite of what God has done toward the poor, you have despised them. And then another argument. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Why are you showing preferential treatment to the rich? Most of the time when you're being persecuted, you saints to whom I'm writing, it's the rich men that have done it. It's the rich men that have political clout that can raise up a city's magistrates against you and persecute you. Why would you honor the rich when they are typically your enemies? Second argument. We should already be satisfied with verse 1. If an apostle tells us by the Holy Spirit not to show respect to persons, that should be enough. But in case it wasn't, the apostle reasons as to other arguments against showing respect to persons, especially respecting the rich and despising the poor. So we have another one in verse 6. Verse 7. Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by which ye are called, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Which category of people, the poor or the rich, are typically more arrogant in their speech? Proverbs tells us, the rich. The rich speak harshly, and the poor use entreaties. I'm, I'm glad you know the book of Proverbs. Praise the Lord. The rich speak harshly, and the poor use entreaties. That means they, they beg and ask for favors and the rich are arrogant and obnoxious in their speech. And so here we have another reason. It is the rich that blaspheme the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The common people heard him gladly. Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by which ye are called? That's a rhetorical question that was obvious enough in that day that these readers understood he was asking a very simple question. Yes, the rich were typically the ones that blasphemed Jesus Christ. Verse 8. If ye fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. Do you like it when you find in the Bible something that if you'll do it, the Lord says ye do well? Here's something that we can do that the Lord says ye do well if we do this. And what is the second commandment? Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. It's called the royal law. If ye fulfill the royal law. Why is it the royal law? Because God ordained it and He's a king. Because Jesus Christ taught it and He's a king. And because it takes a king-like mentality and nobility to do it. Watch. In regard to what I just said, it's called the royal law in one respect because it takes a king-like spirit to love others as yourself. What do we call this statement from Luke chapter 6. Who said that? Oh. 
Well, I'm glad you're thinking with me, brother. I'm glad you're thinking ahead of me. I mean that. Did you hear Brother Jeff? He just chopped me off at the knees. I didn't, you know what. And as ye would that men should do to you, even so do ye to them. What do we call that? The golden rule. Why would we add that adjective, the golden rule? Royal. Because we are doing something that requires a great nobility of spirit to love others as much as we love ourselves. We've all learned that in this church, don't we? That there's one thing we don't have a problem with in the matter of love. We all know how to love ourselves. But the royal law is to learn to love others as much as you love yourself. That is as high of a standard as God could ever give for love. Let's find it in the Scripture. Back to Leviticus 19. Back to, I just want you to see where it came from that James has used two quotes from one chapter of Leviticus in just the first few verses. Leviticus chapter 19. This time, instead of verse 15, it's verse 18. Leviticus 19:18. Thou shalt not avenge, nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. The Lord of glory. I am the Lord. The Lord of glory says don't respect persons, because I don't. And notice what he says here as he's defined... He actually helps us define what it means to love your neighbor as yourself in the first half of the verse. Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor. If you are bearing any grudge this morning against anyone in here, you are not loving your neighbor as yourself, and you are not doing well, according to James 2.8. No grudges. No avenging. Well, I'm going to get even with him. Or I'm going to get my pound of flesh out of him after what he did to me. No! Overlook it! Forgive it! Forbear it! Bury it! Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Our society is addicted to an idea that the reason there are problems in relationships and in souls and people get depressed is because they don't love themselves enough. It's called the self-love movement, the self-esteem movement. That is a lie from hell. And the effects of it can be seen in our nation. They've been teaching that now for over 50 years. Benjamin Spock made money off it, millions of dollars off the sale of his little child training book. We don't need to learn how to love ourselves more. The Lord knows we already do a great good job of it. We need to learn to love others as much as we love ourselves. That's the rule. Don't ever read anything... That speaks about self-esteem and self-love without understanding you are reading the tripe of modern psychology that is contradicting the Word of God. Amen. Do you know what it says about the most dangerous times the church of Jesus Christ will ever face? 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1. Know this also that in the last days the perilous times shall come. Men shall be lovers of their own selves. That's a perilous time for the church of Jesus Christ when men are teaching self-love and self-esteem. We don't need that. We need to learn other love and other esteem. You won't make your children great by teaching them to love themselves and praising them all the time, even if they didn't do anything worthy of praise. 
You'll make your children great by teaching them how to love and serve others. That's the commandment of Jesus Christ. It's amazing. Some children, it never goes through their mind. If you were to put an electrical meter around their head, you would never see a blip on the needle that they ever have a thought about someone else. They're totally committed to themselves. That's, we do not want children like that. We want to teach our children to be thinking upon others and upon their things because that's what the Bible teaches greatness is. That's why it's called the royal law. Hardly anyone does it. Do you remember a man in the Bible that the Holy Spirit says he conducted himself like a king even though he was far from it? This is Bible trivia. Arana. Arana the Jebusite. When that, when that angel stood over Jerusalem with a drawn sword and 70,000 men dropped dead, David ran up to the spot and said, I want your threshing floor and I want to build an altar right here to God for him to sheath that sword and stop killing the men of Israel. And Arana tried to give him the threshing floor, tried to give him the wood for it, tried to give him the ox to kill. And it says he conducted himself like a king in the matter. Of course, David wouldn't let him do that. You know our brother David, don't you? If you think he was going to take a free gift to offer an, altar to offer an offering to God, not on your life. He was going to pay full market price for it. Probably tipped him too. If you know our brother David. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. It's called the royal law because it is so glorious. James chapter 2, verse 8. If ye fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture. And see, we just read the Scripture. According to the Scripture. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Now, it's in other places as well. That if we do that, ye do well. You know, he has told them, don't mix the religion of Jesus Christ with respective persons in verse 1. Now he's saying, if you'll learn to love others like you love yourself, ye do well. But if ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. If you make a difference among men, just because of the money they have or the clothing they're wearing, you are a sinner. You have flunked Leviticus 19.18. You are not loving your neighbor as yourself because God is going to bring all kinds of neighbors along. He's going to bring poor neighbors and He's going to bring rich neighbors. He's going to bring neighbors that can never return a favor and He's going to bring neighbors that can return a favor. And we better not show partiality in how we deal with them. I won't turn you to Luke 14 again because I hope you remember it from last Sunday. But remember... If you make a feast at your house, call the poor, the halt, the lame, the maimed, and the blind. Wouldn't that be a dinner table? You're walking around helping feed them because they're blind. You're helping put them in their chairs. Now, last Sunday when I was talking to you, I was, I, in full sincerity, I was thinking of what if we had a quadriplegic in this assembly? What if we had to go pick someone up in a basket? Would you enjoy taking him to a restaurant and putting him on a chair? If he wanted to go, that's what Jesus said to do. Because you know what? They can't repay you. And Jesus said, don't worry. I'll repay you in the resurrection. That should thrill our souls. Verse 10. This is the second lesson. We'll cover it very quickly. This is partiality in the law. And he he takes off from what he's just explained. He has just explained to these Jews who understood the law well. He understood the scriptures well. He's just explained... If you show partiality based on someone's clothing or their money, you've sinned and you're a transgressor of the law. Now, that's hard to take because that seems like a pretty minor offense. Verse 10. 
For whosoever shall keep the whole law, and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. James is telling these readers, I don't care how righteous you may think you are in the law of God, if you are guilty of even one point of that law, and the point that I've just brought up is the point of showing respect of persons based on their economic ability, you're guilty of the whole law. That does not mean that they're guilty of every offense in the law. That means they're under the condemnation of the whole weight of the law. It doesn't matter whether you sin once, ten times, or a hundred. The law says, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. You're under condemnation. It doesn't matter how many offenses. And to have, this is a hypothetical case because there's no one that has kept the whole law and only broken one point. This is hypothetical to make the point that if you were to do that, you would be guilty of the whole law in the sense that the condemnation the law brings would be on you as heavily as it would be on a man who broke a hundred different commandments. Oh, he's powerful. James is saying, I don't care how righteous you think you are, if you're showing respect of persons, it's a violation of the law and leaves you condemned by the whole law. The weight of the whole law is upon you for that offense. Verse 11, 4, he explains, he that, for he that said, do not commit adultery, and that's God that said that, said also, do not kill. The seventh commandment, James lists first, then the sixth commandment. Now, if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. The law is going to condemn you whether you break the sixth commandment or the seventh commandment or Leviticus 19.18 that said to love your neighbor as yourself. You're condemned by the law. Men love to categorize sins. And it is hard for men to think that showing respect of persons, just making a few differences in the way you treat somebody because of their economic advantages, that that would bring you under the condemnation of the law. It's hard for men to believe that. Verse 12, So speak ye and so do, as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. So speak ye, so. That word so is an adverb. So means in the manner that has just been specified. And what has just been specified? Breaking the law in one point, even in a point as minor as respective persons, brings you under the condemnation of the whole law. So, based on that information I have given you, speak ye, and so do, as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. It is called the law of liberty because Jesus Christ has delivered it us from its condemnation. It is called the law of liberty because we are no longer keeping it in order to be justified, but it is still our rule of life. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself was in Leviticus 19, but it's also in James 2. It was also taught by Jesus, and it's also in Romans chapter 13. It is a rule of life for us. So speak ye and so do, knowing that one violation of the law, even something like respect of persons for their money, puts you under the law. So speak ye and so do in our speech about others and in our action toward others. Let us remember that we shall give an account of ourselves to the God of heaven and we shall be judged by this law of liberty. When the Bible calls the law of God and his rules for us the law of liberty, he doesn't mean we can neglect them. He doesn't mean they're not as important as they were under the Old Testament. He means that they are not the source of bondage in order to be justified. That the Jews had made them. They're still our rule. But they're called the law of liberty. Galatians teaches us why. Because we're no longer held under bondage by them. They're not the means of justification. 
They're the means of how the just shall live. Not how the just shall be justified, but how they should live. So speak ye, and so do. Brethren, this is a warning to us that we shall all give an account of our lives right down to a one commandment, one point of the law. Have you shown respect to others? Leviticus 19.15 Or do you treat all men fairly and equally, especially when we come into the house of the Lord? We shall be judged. For he shall have judgment without mercy that hath showed no mercy. God does not show partiality. And you are not going to get any partiality when you stand before him. And if you have broken this commandment, you are going to be tried for it. And if you have kept this commandment by showing mercy to the poor, God is going to receive that good work in that day. You will not earn eternal life by your good works, but you will give an account of the evil and the good done in your life. For he shall be judged... For he shall have judgment without mercy that hath showed no mercy. The Lord isn't going to look at you and say, oh yeah, you're Bob Reed. I remember you. Or Jonathan Crosby, I remember you. There's going to be no partiality there. He is just going to judge us by the law of liberty. We will give an account of our lives how we have measured up to the laws that we've just been given. And those laws are no respective persons in judgment and in the house of God, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. We shall be judged by those things. Whenever you have a choice to make between judgment and mercy, choose mercy. Do you want a secret? Choose mercy. That does not mean we compromise the law of God. But when a man comes through that door and he's very poor and he's in vile raiment and he's obviously in the the lowest category of humanity, go show him some mercy. Make sure he's the one that you take out to eat. Err on the side of mercy, and it's not even erring. It just is always looking for mercy, because the man that shows mercy is going to be given mercy. God's going to remember that as a good thing in the day when you stand before him. Remember, Jesus is going to say, you are here on my right hand, not because they earned it, but he is going to describe them this way. You visited me when I was in prison. You fed me when I was hungry. You gave me drink when I was thirsty. You clothed me when I was naked. And the righteous are going to say, Lord, when did we ever do anything like that? And he's going to say, because you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren. One of the what? One of the least of these, my brethren. One of the poorest that came into the house of God. One of the poor, the halt, the maimed, and the blind. If you show mercy toward them, God will show you mercy. James 2.13 is so glorious. He shall have judgment without mercy that hath showed no mercy. Let us always stress mercy toward the poor. Let the rich take care of themselves. Mercy toward the poor. And mercy rejoiceth against judgment. A man that shows mercy is going to be able to face the Lord Jesus Christ and rejoice in that day confidently because he has laid up in store for himself a good foundation against the time to come. Mercy rejoices against judgment. Mercy rejoices against judgment because it's a more wonderful thing than judgment. Do you know what God calls judgment? His strange work. God loves to show mercy. He's showing mercy to the wicked right now out there with that sunshine. He shows mercy to the wicked with His rain that He sends on the evil and the good. We want to be like Him. We want to be children of our Father which is in heaven and delight in showing mercy. And the particular mercy that has been under consideration here in 13 verses is toward the poor that have no claim for it, but we give it to them anyway because we're, giving, we're doing it for the least 
of these the brethren of Jesus Christ. And mercy rejoices against judgment, because if you have done so, as I just quoted from 1 Timothy chapter 6, you can lay up in store for yourselves a good foundation against the time to come and lay hold of eternal life, because it's the evidence and the mark of the true child of God that shows mercy toward the poor. Oh, love verse 13 and always choose. Whenever you have a choice, mercy, mercy. And love your neighbor as yourself. No partiality. We're all on the same playing field. We are all brethren in the Lord Jesus Christ. Down to our children and the little ones that believe in Him. There are no economic advantages nor educational attainments that we worry about in this church nor even recognize other than to thank God for something that may have been accomplished in a life. Other than that, we are all alike. We are all one in Christ Jesus. And may God bless us to practice that every day every Lord's Day, all the time, in our speech and in our actions. So speak ye, and so do, as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word.